Okay, I have the privilege this morning of, of continuing to walk us through the Christ of the Covenant series that we're doing. Um, it's a six-week series. We, we had our first ever preaching series right before this. We launched in January, and that took us 15 weeks through Easter, and that was on the book of John. We didn't cover every chapter, um, but we covered a lot of it, and that was a pleasure. And then now we're going cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation, in a sense, in six weeks, kind of a more of a broad overview of What's God doing in the scriptures? Why does he give us these? And what's his plan for us and for all things? Um, and we've called this series Christ of the Covenants. Um, and this week is on the Mosaic Covenant. And so we've looked at the Adamic Covenant. We've looked at uh, the Noahic Covenant God made with Noah. And we've looked last week at Jake preached about um, the covenant God makes with Abraham. And so now we're looking at the covenant with Moses and Israel um, on the fiery mountain. So one thing that I try to say every week about the covenant is that it, it is a way of understanding what God's doing from cover to cover in, salva- in history, which is history is a history of, sa- of salvation. It's a history of God saving his people. It's salvation history as the scripture presents it. Um, it's, it's a history of a God making a people for himself. We screwed up in Adam. We're represented in him. And he rebels against God and we fall. And God doesn't just trash us. He doesn't just say, I'm going to start over or all right, see, I'll just continue to hang with myself in all of my glory and happiness, which he was well entitled to do. But because of his goodness and compassion, he says, no, I'm, gonna, I'm going to continue creation. I'm going to bless creation through, through the man and the woman. And so it's tracing that, that movement of God to bring a people back to himself, despite and even through their rebellion and their sin, um, and to make, make a people for himself that loves him, and that is bought ultimately with his own blood. So um, it's relational. It's one covenant with different stages, kind of like a flower. Like if you can imagine a flower, it has roots, and that's sort of the Adamic covenant, as it were. And then the stalk grows, and maybe you could think of that as a Noahic covenant. And then you have the, some, some leaves that grow, and then more stalk. And then eventually you get to the flower itself. And the flower itself, part of that organism by which Christ, God is bringing us to himself in relationship, That flower is Christ. The whole scripture, all of history is pushing us, pushing us. The narrative of space-time history, God is pushing us to Jesus. So that's why you're going to see him every week presented, because only he makes sense of every single one of the covenants that God establishes, which are all part of a bigger overarching covenant. So um, in Adam, God creates a people for himself. He blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Obey my word. It's the key to blessing. Um, kick the enemy out of the land, what do they do? They disobey, and they get kicked east out of the Garden of Eden, and all of, all of creation breaks under Adam's dominion. Um, this scene repeats in various degrees throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and it's punctuated with each covenant, with Noah, with Abraham, and with Israel, which is where we find ourselves today. What is Israel but this very thing that Adam was, a corporate Adam, created by God, for God, to know him and to make him known to all the nations, to bless creation. They're placed in a garden land. It's, all, it's often described as a land filled with milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey. They're placed in a garden land like Adam was. They're given a law by which to prosper and to obey God and to be, in, to be uh, blessed by him and to live in happiness and peace with him. But they break that, and, and by which to kick the enemy out of the land, the Canaanites. They break that law. 
just like Adam did. And they're kicked east out of the garden, just like Adam was, to Babylon in exile um, in 586 B.C., I believe it was, for 70 years. Um, this, that narrative I just told you takes you straight from Genesis all the way through Malachi, all the way through the end of the Old Testament, with Israel in exile, having just returned because of God's faithfulness, but much diminished. Um, I was reading through the papers this week, which I, I was going to say never. I rarely do. Uh, I mean an actual paper. I mean, I read, I read online some, and I need to do it more, especially now that I'm preaching weekly. Um, but I was reading an actual paper. I think it was a Chronicle. And I was reading this about the story of you know, Johnny Manziel, that just tragic train wreck of a story. Um, and just about how, what a disappointment he's been um, and how he's no longer in the NFL and he's just kind of popping around, carousing from party to party and causing trouble. He was the, um, you know, played at A&M for, what, two years and won the Heisman his freshman year as a true freshman, I believe. And they called him, I mean, he was so good and such a playmaker. They, his nickname was Johnny Football. Um, I think he got a license plate that said something like that. Uh, but he was just an amazing talent, amazingly, is an amazingly talented guy but um, kind of mis started to misbehave the more famous he got and was drafted in 2014 as a 20-year-old you know, to the Cleveland Browns. Uh, come on. So you're especially sad right now. Yeah. Um, right on. Um, was drafted by the Cleveland Browns. Um, and sorry for what, what I'm about to say. Uh, <laughs> you'll probably agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In 2014, um, they had a a psychiatrist quote, and they were talking about kind of how that was, man, they should have seen that one coming kind of thing in the, in the article, but um, there was so much hope. He's so much talent. And the psychiatrist said, unfortunately, there's this thing about you know pretty much the one way to know what the great indicator about what someone's going to do is what they've done. A great indicator about future behavior is past behavior. And unfortunately, um, they ignored that maxim or truism in Johnny's case, and they're paying for it literally now. Um, and so uh, that, if we're not careful, could be exactly what we are tempted to say of God here in this account, in this story, in this narrative of God making a covenant with this people, Israel, whom he has just saved and brought out of the iron furnace of Egypt as slaves. Um, our text is in Exodus 34, but 10 chapters earlier in Exodus 24, God makes, he had, makes the covenant for the first time with Israel. Um, before Moses can get down the mountain with the ter sort of the terms of the covenant, as it were, the laws that he's giving to Israel to be a people by, the Israelites are breaking the first two commandments. They're, um, they're having other gods before God, and they're making idols. They're having a party and worshiping. We don't know where Moses or this God is who's just brought us through the Red Sea out of Egypt, but um, we're going to go ahead and worship a God of our own creation. And so um, two chapters after uh, Moses intercedes with God because God's like, hey, move out of the way, Moses. Let me just destroy this people, and I'll start over with you. No problem. Um, Moses intercedes for the life of Israel based on God's character, and God listens. And God, two chapters after that intercession, is reinitiating a covenant with Israel, which is our text this morning in Exodus 34. So we could be tempted to say, look at their past behavior, God. They're going to do it again. 
They're going to do it again. So the first thing I want you to see that the law tells us is that it's not a solution to our bad behavior, but it is something that God gave to help Israel, Israel prosper as a people. So before getting to the fact that, man, they just broke the law egregiously, I want to look at its goodness. Just kind of skip over some, run through some of the laws that Jeremiah read out and look at how, I mean, there are 630 of them plus, and they all really flow out of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which are really true for every culture at all times. You know, don't, don't commit adultery, um, don't bear false witness, don't murder, don't steal. Um, but so we're not going to read through, we're not going to look at all the, all the laws or even close to them, but even just the ones that are in our text this morning and see how good they are and how, if kept, what they are is they're a reflection of God's character and they are, if kept, they really will prosper a people. So um, the law is not given as a list of do's and don'ts in a void, but within the context, if you were listening to Jeremiah's language and if you were here last week for the Abrahamic covenant, within the context of God's covenant that he's making with his people for relationship. In other words, you're my, because you're my beloved children and because I've made you mine through no good of your own, obey these rules which are good and they will bless you and they will bless creation through you. And we see this if we just look at the Ten Commandments. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus 20 is the first time they appear. And in the Ten Commandments, before you get the actual commands, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. There's a prelude. It's a one-verse prelude. And what does God say? He didn't just jump into the commands. He says this, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says what? You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, remember that the story of the context of the law, I've just saved you before giving you the law. I'm not giving you a law and then saying, okay, if you obey it well enough, then I'll make you my people. That's not the order of the narrative. That's, the order is really important in the Hebrew Bible. The order of the narrative is, I'm choosing to set my love upon you through no good of your own, even though you've already shown yourselves to be unfaithful and disobedient. I've brought you out of Egypt by my powerful hand through no good of your own. I've saved you. I've set my love upon you. And now I'm giving you a law. I've already loved you. I already love you, and now I'm giving you a law to live by, and it's a good law, so live by it. Um, this covenant, it's often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. It's not separate from the Abrahamic Covenant. Think of that organism, that flower. It's part and parcel. Um, it's not a covenant by works to replace or supersede as more advanced or outdated, the Abrahamic Covenant. Um, the primitive covenant of faith that God gave to Abraham 400 years previous and swore by himself to keep, it's not a replacement of that. It's a development of that. It's in line with that. That's why one of the reasons we, we had you, we had Jeremiah read Exodus 2, 23 and 25, through 25, right before this big text in Exodus 34. That's when um, Moses, God appears to Moses when he's in exile in, in Sinai, in the desert, east of, east of Egypt, when he's been kicked out of Egypt for murdering somebody. Um, and he, 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 says, he, he says, I am the God of that covenant, the covenant that I made with Abraham. Therefore, Go and set my people free. So this is the foundation of everything I'm about to do with you, all the law I'm about to give you. Um, Exodus 3.15, when God actually appears to Moses in the burning bush, it says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Again, remember who I am. I'm the God of covenant. Nothing's changed. 
And then our main text actually tells us this by its language, as it recalls the promise that God made to Abraham in giving this covenant. In other words, I made these promises again to you without any regard to your works or obedience to the laws. Um, and I'm going to take you to a land, but to be able to enjoy that land and be able to enjoy being a people and to be my people, you, there has to be, there has to be obedience. Um, and that's really what verses 11 through 16 in your text are about, is really God just using Abrahamic language to say, remember that promise I made to Abraham when I put him to sleep as Jake, as Jake preached last week? I put him to sleep, basically, and I, went, I passed through as a torch. I passed through the cut pieces of the animal saying, I'm going to keep both sides of the covenant. Remember that? He's using the same language. I made a promise to say, I, in 400 years, after your people are in slavery for four centuries, I will bring them out, and I will kick out all of the Canaanites and bring them to a good land. That's the way he starts this covenant. He's saying the same thing. He's saying, yeah, you're going to drive out all those ites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites. Um, this law, this covenant is to help you as my people to thrive. So let's look at a, just a few of those laws. Let's skim over a few of them, and then uh, we'll keep rocking. So the goodness of the law. Um, if you look at verse 18, for instance, sort of after we get through that covenantal section, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread annually. Okay? Um, this, is, uh, this is the feast of sort of a, a short way of saying the feast of Passover. Um, and the feast of unleavened bread, keep it year by year to remember when I brought you out of the land um, through no good of your own. Remember how I saved you. Um, this, these laws aren't about scorekeeping or outward performance. They're from a God who loves you and saved you to be his sons and daughters, to make you his family. Um, and if you look to the, the Passover kind of flanks this section. At the end, at verse 25, he mentions things to do with the Passover as well. Don't do this, don't do this. Make sure you, make sure you celebrate it in that way. Um, and then if you look at verses 19 and 20, we're kind of skipping here, uh, skipping over some of these. He says, basically, in verses 19 and 20, look, all, remember, remember in the law I gave you, all of the eldest males of each household, in humans and animals, all of creation is represented here, um, are forfeit. They're forfeit. They're mine. So how do they go on living? Well, either, either I require their blood at my hand, they don't go on living, or a sacrifice can die in their place. Every oldest male of every household has to have a sacrifice dying in his place. In other words, in that culture, eldest, the eldest male represented the whole family. So that's a sort of synecdoche. It's a sort of way of saying, a shorthand way of representationally saying, every single life is forfeit. Every life to continue to be in a relationship with me has to have something innocent that doesn't deserve to die, die in his place. Pictures, pictures of Christ, pictures of what the law is driving us to, pictures that are driving us to see that the law is good, but it shows our badness, which is going to be our next point. Your life is not your own, and if you're living like your life is your own, you are in for a rude awakening when you die and stand before God with nothing but your own record. Something innocent has to die and live in your place. You, you and your works will not cut it. This is one of the things the law shows us. Verse 21, um, 
He's talking about rest here. Hey, remember my Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commands. Every seventh day, I want you just to not work, and I want you to rest. And remember that I worked for six days making all things, and then I rested. So it's not just rest once a week. It's rest once a week, come together and worship, and remember at least once a week together that I made everything and that I am bringing all things back to myself, and I'm working my salvation through my creation, through the person of my son, Jesus Christ. Um, so rest once a week. Um, and I just want to say, by way of application right here, kind of press pause and say, do you rest once a week? Do you, do you stop and, and just not do whatever it is that you do for a living? I'm not saying don't go swimming, don't move, don't eat. <laughs> I'm saying, do you rest? Come together with God's people to worship him and to do something different, to rest, to press pause, to say, I need this. Life isn't about working constantly. It's about abiding in God. It's about remembering who he is and knowing who he is right now. And coming together with his people in a special, pointed, formal way to do that as often as I can. Do you rest weekly? You know, um, studies have been done, and we can go longer without water than we can go without sleep. We need not only good sleep, but we need good rest. And of course, this, even this kind of strange particular command is pointing us to a greater rest that we can only, a soul rest, that we can only attain in Christ. Um, so, okay, then verses 22 through 24, the Feast of Weeks. He says, hey, I want you to get together um, three times a year. I want the men to get together in all of Israel when I move you into this land and get together at a central location that ended up being Jerusalem. And I want you to celebrate a feast you know, during um, the planting and then during the harvest of the planting as an agricultural culture. Um, and then one other time per year. In these regular times throughout the year, I want you to, to just to come together and to leave your fields and to leave your families and to come and to uh, worship me and to feast before me and to live in kind of tents. Um, and so... One of the things that this does is that it helps Israel remember that it was a wandering sort of people that lived in tents during their time um, in the wilderness. When God, it, or they remember that God brought them to this to this land through no good of their own. But also, it's a, it's a way of surrendering and saying, regular times throughout the year, I'm going to leave my crops at the time of seed planting and the time of harvest, two of the most important times when I should be working. I'm going to leave by faith in God's command. My, my field and my home, and I'm going to go and I'm going to worship, and I'm going to feast before God with his people. And it was also the, the time of the most exposure. When a foreign people were going to come and rape the land, as it were, would have been, and steal the crops, it would have been during the time of harvest in particular, when the crops were ready to be harvested. But God says, during that time of greatest possible exposure and vulnerability, I will provide, he says in these verses, I will provide for you. I am your strength. Don't rely on your crops. Don't rely on your horses, your chariots, your wealth. Remember, regular times throughout the year, I will protect you. You come and you worship me. That's the first priority. I want to ask you, do you have regular times in your day? A time, a quiet time. I don't care what you call it. A QT, I don't, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Do you have a regular time in the regular rhythms of your day? of your week where we're taking a break once a week to not work and to worship God and to rest with our families and to bless them and to recoup. And to re um, do you have regular times in your day, in your week, in your year 
where you're reminding yourself of God's faithfulness and you're putting your work aside and you're trusting him. Um, it's one of the reasons that, you know, we, as a, as a church, as a people of God, we celebrate regular things together. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Easter. We, um, you know, we come together every week. And uh, next week I'm going to have out, and I'm going to e- email out uh, tomorrow, and I think I emailed out a couple weeks ago, just a sort of quiet time, a daily quiet time kind of help. Like if you're not spending time in the Word and in prayer daily, it's just part of that rhythm of resting with God and pulling in and trusting Him and growing in Him. It'll help you to do that month by month. Um, so I'll have those cards out next week if you just want to grab one. But in um, this last kind of deal that Jeremiah read, this verse 26, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And it's like, what? It's just so random sounding. Well, it's kind of a puzzler for some scholars and commentators, and everybody seems to have a different take on it. Um, but I think the Jews ended up eventually kind of saying, okay, well, we're going to take this hyper-literally, and we're going to say that we can't eat dairy and meat together. So you can't, like, have a kosher hamburger with cheese on it. That's literally what, you know, an observant Jew will not have a kosher hamburger with cheese on it because of this law right here. But I don't think that's what God's saying here. Um, I think a couple things. One, apparently um, this is something or something very similar to this that the Canaanites would do. The, the, the enemies of God um, in the land that God was going to uh, use his people to drive out and drive out himself, um, they would do something very similar. And God's, in, in one sense, he's saying, this is a, man, a form of manipulation. Um, it's, they, they were like, fer, they were fertility religions where the very thing that the mother used to feed her goat, um, let's, let's cook the goat in that uh, because, because that means that uh, our 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 crops and also our, our, our animals will abound um, because in the same way that the goat was getting that, now we're sort of representationally uh, saying to the God that, um, you know, oh, we want that kind of nourishment for our, for our animals and for our crops. Um, and it was a form of, of saying, like, here's, here's a kid, here's a young, a young goat that I could use for myself, and I'm giving it to you, and I'm doing these things. I'm sort of pulling levers so that you give back to me more. And it was a form of manipulation. And that's essentially what the Old Testament laws show us in other places that religion is. Anything but the true religion that God's established for us in Christ is a form of manipulation. It's basically, I'm going to follow these laws, you bless my life, in whatever form or fashion. I'll do this, you do that. It's tit for tat, if you want to summarize it and crystallize it. And it's, it's basically magic, but manipulating God. God hates that. That's what the covenant is all about. The covenant is about relationship. The covenant is about something we cannot do. And the laws are not for our salvation. They're for our blessing. Um, God wants our hearts. God wants our hearts. The other thing that I think this shows us is the kindness of God, in short. Don't boil a kid. The very thing that a, a, a baby goat uses for nourishment, don't take that and kill it with that thing. Even, even in, in the ways um, that you eat, and in the sacrifices that I give to you, remember that death is a necessary evil. It's, it's part of a broken creation. And even in his laws about death and about eating, God is kind. He loves his creation. And so it just shows us some of the heart of God and some of the equity that's in the law. Um, so the law was not a solution to our bad behavior, but it was something God gave to help Israel, Israel prosper as a people, and it was beautiful because the law comes from God, and he's beautiful. 
But the law was also given to prove Israel's need for a savior through her inability to keep the law. And worse, it actually, it didn't just prove that Israel couldn't keep it, it actually aggravated her evil. It made her want to break the law that she'd never known before. Um, so in short, the law, though good, made things worse for Israel, not better, by inducing her to sin and increasing her condemnation. Now she knew exactly what she was doing wrong. I'm breaking this rule and this rule and this law and that law. The law made things worse. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is a display of that very fact. All the way to exile. Israel, not only can she not keep the law, but it aggravates her sin. It aggravates her sin. And it aggravates her accountability. It increases her accountability before God because now she knows everything she's breaking. Um, Paul in Romans 5.20, what does he say? He says this, this strange part of this first verse. Now the law came in, what? What's the reason for the law? To increase the trespass. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The, the very placement of this covenant, as I, as I talked about earlier, the very placement of this covenant shows us that this, this is not going to be enough. This covenant and this law aren't going to cut it. They're not going to be enough to grow and sustain a relationship between God and his people. How do we know that? Johnny Manziel, past behavior is a great indicator of future behavior. Israel has already egregiously and with great celerity, with great speed, shattered the covenant. The first two commandments that God gives. Hey, I want relationship with you. I'm going to give you a bunch of laws. Let me give you the first one, just sort of a synopsis of that, and to underscore that I want relationship. Love me. Love me. I created you for myself. Don't worship any other gods. I'm jealous. And then they do that very thing. And then God redoes the very position of this covenant tells us it's not going to cut it. We know what's going to happen. At the end of this book of Exodus, what happens? At the very end of this book, in ancient books, position was important. Beginning, middle, end. Just the fact that it's the end, end is really important. What happens at the end of Exodus? They finally, all the laws of the tabernacle are given. They build the tabernacle. It's this glorious moment. God comes in his presence down, and Moses gets to the tabernacle. And what happens? He can't even enter. It's too much. Even Moses cannot enter into God's presence. It's too much. Um, and if we look at um, how the law ends, all the way at the end of Deuteronomy, um, Moses can't enter the promised land. That's how the five books that he wrote that are the foundation of the Bible, Exodus ends where he can't enter God's presence, and then Deuteronomy ends, where he can't even enter God's land, the promised land that he gave to God's people. And they enter, but as soon as they enter, if you've read the book of Judges, you know, as soon as they enter, they start sowing the seeds of their own destruction. And if you look at the regnal history, the reigning king history of Israel, all the way from Saul and David onwards, David and Solomon were the apex of the glory of Old Testament Israel, God's people. Look at Solomon. He was, he was given everything. He was a type of Messiah. He had all the riches, all the wisdom, all the blessing, materially and otherwise. And he sowed the seeds of Israel's destruction through his great unfaithfulness. And he is at the top. And the history of Israel, all the way from Solomon, all the way through the last prophet, is this. It's just a slide to exile. 
So what does the end of Exodus, the end of Deuteronomy, the end of the very Old Testament itself show us where we end basically in exile, but with God's promise remaining? It shows us that the law, it, it, one of its purposes is, is to create in us a need for a Savior. We cannot keep it. We can't do it. Hannah Arendt, uh, um, Jewish intellectual, um, she wrote, in 1961, they caught one of the top henchmen, one of the top architects of the Nazi regime, um, especially that bit called the Holocaust, uh, that was this mass deportation of Jews out of Germany, into Germany and out, out of Poland and other places to get them into these what became known as death camps and to exterminate them. He, was help, he helped to build that program. He fled to Austria and then later to um, Argentina, lived through 1945 and through the defeat of the, the Axis. And uh, they caught him in 1960 in Argentina the secret, the Mossad, the secret service of Israel, and they brought him to Israel, and they tried him in a public trial and um, under Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of, of Israel. And um, Hannah Arendt wrote a book um, about that trial. She, had, she was a correspondent for the New York Times, and she had to go as a Jew that had lived through that, um, that had, had friends that had died there. Um, she had to go and report on it, and she shocked and scandalized and frightened many people and angered a lot of Jews who are to this day not fans of this woman by watching and listening to Eichmann closely and by concluding that he was not a demon or a monster as many people thought the Nazis were and wanted to believe they were but rather was in many ways a normal human being in other words any of us given the right circumstances and put in the right conditions, could have been or could be an Adolf Eichmann. Um, we, is, is, as long as we say that that type of person is not human but a monster or a demon and not, has no relation to us, we can hold him at arm's length. But as soon as we say, actually, he was a human that did some really terrible things, and you know what? There are a lot of ways in which there, that was just a lot of the evil that he did was just banal. It was just uh, him just kind of taking orders and ta doing the next thing. And, and those seeds, there's a sense in which that evil is resident in all of us. And that is a frightening, frightening thing. The problem is our hearts. We are totally depraved, which doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It means that every part of us, because of the fall of Adam, because Adam broke that covenant that God made with him, where God made us to be in relationship, and we said no. We shattered that fabric that ties creation and us together and that makes our lives make sense. And every part of us, our minds, our emotions, every part of our physicality even broke at that point. Um, we're totally depraved. We are enemies of God. And his good law in every part of our constitution, this law helps show us that. And it shows us how desperately we need a sacrifice, an effective sacrifice, which will actually take away our sins, paying the price they've accrued. And, you know, don't ever forget, a lot of people talk about the law as a list of do's and don'ts in abstraction from, again, the context of God saving them, of saving Israel, but also what was given with the law. 
what comes after this, this huge books and books, Leviticus, Numbers, huge litany of regulations about the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrificial system. God, with the law, gave as part of that law a way for the law to be broken and to still be in relationship with him through the death of something innocent. Um, so we need a sacrifice which will actually take away our sins, pay the price that our sins have accrued before a just God, and check this out, sort of like Chris alluded to earlier, give us new hearts. Not just wipe the slate clean, but give us new hearts that actually love God and his law. God is after our hearts. The, command, the first command of the, of the Ten Commands shows us that. Um, the Shema, which is the sort of summation and crystallization of the whole Old Testament, shows us that. I Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, I am the Lord your God. The Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. First command. Everything else is taken care of if we do this. With all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like unto it, found in Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's the law about? It's about love from the heart, God and man. We can't do it. I am obsessed with my own needs. I am selfish and self-centered. Something in me, my fundamental constitution, not just my behavior, has to change. I need a heart transplant. You need a heart transplant. That is something the law cannot give us. Just like a mirror can't change anything about me. It just shows me what I am. That's the law. No power to affect change. No power to save. And that's why God gave it to us. It shows us his goodness, but it shows us therein our badness. And it drives Israel toward, and us toward, if we're reading along and participating, our need for a Savior. I have a friend uh, who has lost over the series of the past decade a lot. Everything but his life. Kind of Jobin, in a sense. Which we're going through Job this summer, so it should be good. Um, he's a dear man, but I think in a lot of ways he's tried to keep God sort of as one of the things. You know, God's... Uh, if our lives are a pie chart, God's one of the pie, he's one of the pieces. God, church, work, family, uh, diversions, holiday. Um, but God is relentlessly after this guy's heart, as he is after yours. And he wants all of this guy. And, you know, God will work through tragedy. He doesn't author tragedy. He doesn't author evil or sin. He's good. That doesn't come from him. But He's allowed tragedy and even brought tragedy in this man's life in such a way that all these pieces of the pie keep being taken away. And God's saying, I want your heart. His business was recently taken away. His wife, a few years ago, um, unfaithful, left him. Uh, and his life is just like slowly, as he continues to try, want desperately to, I think, make God one of the things that uh, in his resume... God's like, that's not what I'm about. That's, those aren't my terms. I died for you. I want all of you. It's all or nothing. And I've given you all, so I want all. Those are God's terms. All, all for free. I do it all, and you receive it, and you, and you give me all of yourself in return. I mean, that's, that's the gospel. Um, so I've watched this, and it's as painful as it is, it's just a reminder to me that God loves him, and God wants his heart. And it's the same for all of us. There's this, you know, the law, if we read it rightly, shows us this, but the prophets do too. 
Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their, listen to this, husband. How does God see us in relationship to him? Is it about a list of do's and don'ts? No, that's not a list of do's and don'ts language. That is, I want all of you. I want your heart. I want your mind. I want your body. That's what I made you for. You will not ever be satisfied. You will never rest until you rest in that, until you rest in God. And then what? All these things shall be added to you. That's not in the text. Um, Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, what? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their people, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You know, in Exodus 24, before Israel broke God's covenant egregiously, the first time God set up this, this Mosaic covenant with, with Israel, um, the elders, they got to uh, actually go up on the mountain. All those that represented Israel got to go up and actually eat a meal on the mountain. It says, it says astonishingly, face to face with God. They got to sit down and feast in God's presence on the mountain that shouldn't, be, shouldn't have been touched. And the text emphasizes, Stephen Dempster, the Old Testament scholar, says this. The text says this. It emphasizes that they would not be injured. It says, the leadership of Israel is permitted to ascend the mountain and experience a vision of God without being injured. Exodus 24, 11. The text, again, stresses this fact. Why? To be able to gaze on God and to fellowship in his covenant and not die as sinful human beings, that ought not to happen. They should have been harmed. They should have died. They should have been vaporized and sent to hell. That's what we deserve. How did they survive? Well, pictorially, what God did is as before they went up to feast, the way that the covenant was ratified is there was a big bowl of blood from, the, from a sacrificed, pure, innocent animal that shouldn't have died but died in their place. And the blood was taken by Moses, and what? It was thrown on the altar of sacrifice, and it was thrown all over the people. Blood from an animal, from a sacrifice that died so you could live, you're just dripping with it. Now you can go eat. Now you can go eat in God's presence. Now you can stand before God. Now you can feast with God. Now you can know him. Now you can be in fellowship with him. Drenched in the blood of something that died for you that didn't deserve to die. If that doesn't point us to Christ, if that doesn't shoot us running to Christ in this Old Testament where we groan waiting for Messiah, I don't know what does. I don't know what does because Christ comes along after years of waiting and after the last prophet leaves us with 400 years of silence. And he comes and he is born God himself as a baby born under the law to keep the law for us in our place that we cannot keep, to live the life that we should have lived but can't, and to die death on a Roman cross and to become the sin, our sin, on that cross and to take upon himself all the wrath of God justly deserved 
for us as payment for our sins to take that upon himself. This Jesus lived for us. This Jesus died for us. This, his blood, we have to have by faith as we trust in him and his life and death for us in our place. I deserve what you got, but you took it for me so I could be in relationship with God, so I could have a new heart. We are covered, as it were, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And as such, and only as such, the Old Testament law is telling us, can we go and be in God's presence and fellowship with him as God's true son or daughter, as God's people, made his people by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. So do you see how the law is good, but the law aggravates our sin and shows us how much we can't do it and how much, therefore, we need, we need a Savior. Um, just let me close where I started with, with uh, Johnny Football, if I can find him here. Um, you know, behind this train wreck of a man, this 24-year-old man who's just made a disaster of his life, are two people, and they're called parents. And they're heartbroken at the decisions this man is making. No doubt about it. Um, because they love him a lot. And uh, this is the way that it is with Israel and God. God loves Israel a lot. And he loves us a lot. And he knows that we are just going to screw it up again. So he came and did it for us. In the person of his son. And all he asks and what he does ask is I have made a way for you to come and to be with me. Not only to pay for your sins, but to give you a new heart that actually loves me. That actually loves me. Well, you, you don't have to obey because you're already my son or daughter. You just get to now. You just get to now because you love me and you want to please me as my child. Believe on Christ and you will be saved. That's what the Old Testament law shows us. Let me pray. Father, you're our Father because of Christ, our brother, who died for us, the true Israel, to whom Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, point. You obeyed the law perfectly from the heart in our place, and you died in our place, and it's why we're here. We love you. We bless you. Draw us to yourself now in Jesus' name. Amen.